0: Thanks Steve for reading that vital bit of the Bible, which we're going to see today is actually really important for us to understand. Uh, my name's Rowan, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so great to see you. If you're, if you're new, special welcome to you. Great to have you come along. We've been working through this book of Leviticus, as Lachlan said earlier, and thinking through what are the implications of God's holiness to us. Uh, I didn't make the out the, the deadline to get the outline of the t- in the outlines this week. I'm sorry about that. You can see it up on the screen uh, if you want to write some of those points down, but we'll go through them as we go. Um, You'll see where we're going today and hopefully make sense of this part of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you've given us your Word. You do not leave us without speaking, without knowing you, that you've revealed yourself to us. And today as we come to understand This part of your word and what that means for us, we pray that by your spirit, you would show us the incredible significance of you and your holiness and us and our brokenness and the solution that you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start today with a confession. I hate arbitrary rules, like literally rules that are just there for no reason and make me angry. I get so frustrated at them. I mean, when I was at primary school, I was taught one of these such rules. It was a rule of grammar. Do you remember it? I before E except after C. Who was taught that at primary school? i a show of hands. Right. Why did my teachers think that in my young and impressionable moments at primary school that they should put that rule in my head? I mean, do we really care with the order of the I and the E? If I went round just for a year swapping them, would people pick it up? Would they notice? But my primary, yes. Yes, all you grammar people. Well, let me show you something. My, my primary school teachers told me to embrace the power of the C that swapped the I and the E. right? Embrace the power of the C. That's what I was told to do. But what does the C actually do to make the E and the I swap places? Like, What, what is it, some magic power? The best thing I could come up with was that C stands for castle, which in chess, which also starts with C, Uh, is the best move where you can swap two pieces like that. I'm like, maybe that's why the C has this amazing power to swap the I and the E. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. But the thing that I think is ironic is that when you take, for instance, a word like science, the very word for testability and empirical research, the C suddenly loses its power. Do you notice that? They don't swap. It doesn't do anything. Apparently, science is the exception to the rule, whereas I thought science was actually about making rules. It's just weird, isn't it? Which, by the way, is another exception to the rule, the word weird. Like, where did that come from? This time there's no C but the I and the E swap anyway. I mean, maybe someone was sitting around when they invented the word weird and went, I know, I'm going to make up a word that's going to spin everyone out. Like, what are you going to call it they're like weird they're like but i'm going to swap the i and the e and everyone's going to go what's with that and they'll say yeah, it's just weird and there you go there you have it there's a sense when we get to this section of the bible and we read about animals that chew the card but don't have divided hooves, and that they're bad and that fish as long as they have scales and fins are good but if it's got scales and no fins and it's no good or if it's got fins and no scales that's not good either You just throw your hands up in the air, like these arbitrary rules of grammar, and go, what is going on? What is this doing here? And it doesn't even mention the owls. Did you hear about the owls? Have you seen the owls on the list? There's a short-eared owl and a long-eared owl. I mean, can you imagine? You've been out all day hunting for food. You've got your bow and your arrow with you. It's getting dark. Dusk's there. Finally, in the distance, you see a bird without binoculars You pull your arrow out, and you've got to work out the length of its ears. Is it a long-eared owl or a short-eared owl? But thankfully, God here doesn't discriminate on the basis of ear length. Both of them are bad. Don't eat either of them. That's what the Bible says here. Now, you've got to ask, what is going on? What are these seemingly arbitrary laws God has given Israel all about? And what have they got to do with us today? Well, I want to show you it's about choice and identity. Choice and identity. So if you live in New Zealand, there are some choices that you just don't make, some choices that have been made for you. For instance, you cannot eat the national bird, the kiwi, of New Zealand. You you could, but you'd go to prison if you did, right? In Australia, for instance, you can eat emu burgers. We love eating our national bird. They're tasty, they're big, that's what we do. You can eat them and not end up in prison. If you live in South Africa, you can eat your way through the entire cast of the Lion King and be okay, right? What you choose to eat signifies something about your identity, about who you are. And so far in the book of Leviticus, we've heard loud and clear that the people of God, Israel, were to be holy, set apart from the other nations, different as God's special people. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says this, be holy... Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because God was different like no other, the creator of all, and so different from every other pretend God and every other part of his creation, so the people that he chose were to be holy. They were to be different like no other people on the face of the earth. The problem was this concept of holiness was that while God was holy and pure and without sin, his people were not. And so last week we saw that that an unholy people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And the whole book of Leviticus is about how sinful people like you and me can approach a God who is without sin, who is holy, and how we can live when that happens. We've titled this series uh, Approaching Holiness, both in the way that we approach God, how can we approach God who is holy, and how do we grow in holiness ourselves. But the problem we saw last week was the problem of our sin that in order for someone who deserves to die to approach God, it required sacrifice. But this week, the problem with our approach to God isn't sinfulness, but cleanliness. See, the Old Testament Levitical laws separate everything into two categories. And I've got a picture of it on the screen here. You've got that which is holy and that which is common. Holy is set apart for God. Common is everything else. But then within the common category, you've got two kind of categories, subcategories within it. You've got the things that are clean and the things that are unclean. So you've got here this picture of holiness is is what it is to be in the presence of God and like God. And then there's commonness. And within the common, there's, there's things that are kind of normal, clean, and then abnormal, unclean. If you want to think about it in our terms, holy is special, clean is normal. Unclean is abnormal. Now, what was clean could be elevated to being holy, appropriate for God's presence through sacrificial ritual. But it could also be degraded to be unclean by the pollution of sinfulness. It's important to understand that unclean and clean does not necessarily mean immoral or sinful. We're not used to thinking that morality and purity are different. We usually think that morality and purity are the same thing. If you're moral, you're pure, and then they kind of go together. But here in Leviticus, they're not. They're related, but they are not the same. So the Old Testament prophets, they repeatedly condemn the nations around Israel, the Gentile nations, for their sins against God's moral laws. But the Gentile nations are never condemned for not observing the dietary laws. In a similar way, the bleeding that follows childbirth, or the ejaculation that creates a child, they're not sinful part a life, part of God's life-giving plan. However, after each of these events, the person is rendered unclean, not because they've done something wrong, but because you'll see in a minute that in each of these acts, there's something not quite as it was intended to be. Leviticus identifies sins like sexual immorality as sin, whereas the purity laws identify life's brokenness because of sinfulness. So these seemingly arbitrary rules God sets up in Leviticus are there, as I said, for two reasons. To remind the Israelites of their identity as God's people, that they were God's choice. That's where choice comes into it. They were God's choice. And secondly, to remind the Israelites of the effect of their choice, that they rejected the true and living God and the effects of their sin have leaked out into all of creation. Choice is at the heart of these laws. The food laws drive home for Israel the importance of distinction. That's point number two. The importance of distinction. The purity laws, we'll see in a moment, show the extent of sin's pollution. But we'll get there in a second. So, the importance of distinction, point number two. Chapter 11 outlines for us the dietary requirements of the people of God, right? And it was different, as you just heard. Here, God categorizes the animals into the same realms as he does in Genesis 1. Don't know if you noticed that. There's animals on the land, there's fish in the sea, and birds in the air, three groupings. And what we'll find out as we go through this is that scotch fillets and lamb shanks are in, but bacon and camel are out. In case you're wondering, that's what God has set up for his people. Fish are in as long as it's got both scales and fins, but that means lobsters and prawns are out, which is sad. I bet all of you are sitting there going, man, am I glad I'm in the new covenant now. (laughs) Prawns all the way, you know, bacon, Birds of prey who eat meat with blood in it, they're out. But doves, pigeons and quails, they're all fine. Why does God distinguish like this? I mean, there's a few options that people come up with. Uh, Some people say it's because these animals that were unclean were used in sacrifices to other gods in other religions. But it can't be that because the clean animals were also used in sacrifices to other gods in other religions. Uh, Others say it's because of health reasons. Uh, but the Arabs have been eating camel for centuries, right? And they seem fine. They, they get on fine with camel. I've never tasted camel. Maybe you have. And then when Jesus comes along and declares all foods clean, it can't be that, well, suddenly there was no health benefits, but then Jesus says, okay, they're clean and now they're good for us. There's, there's like an immediate shift straight away. It can't be that. No, the food laws were a visible reminder of God's choice. The choice God made in choosing Israel. Every day and multiple times a day, the people of God had to work out would or wouldn't eat. Every meal was an expression of their identity. Would I eat the way God told me to eat? Or would I, live, would I eat like the, the other nations around me? Would I live God's way or the way of the nations? And just like God's choice of Israel had nothing to do with the intrinsic value of the Jews. In fact, they weren't even a people. God chose them. Not because of anything in and of themselves or because of something they brought to God, but he chose them simply because he chose them. So God's choice of food was to remind Israel that it had nothing to do with the quality or or the intrinsic value of each food, but simply God's choice. Each time you ate what God chose, you were expressing that you were a people of God's choice. Eating became a theological reality. You were his different to the nations around you, not because of anything in and of yourself, not because of something in these foods, but simply because of God's choice. And so like this, clean food was chosen and set apart in the same way that Israel were chosen and set apart. It was this wonderful expression of the grace of God, His undeserved choice, every time they ate. So in Leviticus 11, God gives the reason for all these laws. For, he says, for, I am the Lord your God. So you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Because God was different and they were God's people. They were to be different from the nations around them. And that was expressed not only in how they acted, but in every choice they ate with. But it wasn't just what they ate that made God's people clean or unclean. Chapters 12 to 15 talk about the effects of sickness and disease and leaky buildings and leaky bodies. And what they show us is the extent of sin's pollution. Point number three, the extent of sin's pollution. In chapter 12 that Steve read for us, we heard about the purification required after childbirth. Now again, there's nothing sinful about childbirth. New life coming into the world is is a good thing. But there's something broken about it. The pain that comes, the blood that's lost, are all effects of sin on that which was good. Chapter 13 then begins what I've called the itchy and scratchy show. If you've ever seen that cartoon, it was a great one. But it's a catalogue of what goes wrong with our extremities swelling, scaling, scabs, spots, all the kind of grossness that is there that pharmacists have to deal with. You know? It must be the the, the pain of the pharmacist when people say that line, oh, I've got this rash. I'd be like, (laughs) oh. As a youthful teen, I used to enjoy being in elevators. And when I was in the elevator, I'd occasionally say, oh, I'm just really itchy. I've had this rash for like a couple of weeks and just watch the faces of other people who I didn't know in the elevator. Yeah, not the most helpful. In chapter 13, we see there's nothing sinful sickness it's not sinful to be sick but sickness shows the extent of sin's pollution we weren't made to be broken we weren't made to be sick we were made to be in right relationship with god but the fact that our bodies break down our skin gets flaky and we have disease shows the pollution that sin has caused even into the world around us sickness scaliness even mold and mildew in your house in chapter 14 were all seen as the effects of sin's pollution. Auckland's leaky buildings, that's what they are, effect of sin's pollution. People not getting stuff right and so now our buildings leak because the building code was wrong. There's mould growing in the houses, there's a problem with it. Here in Leviticus, God is saying that anything that has to do with sin and death, even if it's just the consequences of that sin and not the sin itself, has no place in proximity to Him, the life-giving God. So, why touching a dead animal or a dead person rendered you unclean. You could not be clean. You were unclean. You then have to go through this ritual of washing. Now, in a a farming society, the removal of dead animals was a normal part of life. Anyone who touches a dead animal or carries their carcass, Leviticus 11 tells us, is unclean, though. Now, it's not condemning the removal of a dead hyena from your property or a dead mouse from your, your pantry. It's not saying that touching something unclean is sinful, but it's saying that every contact with a carcass rendered that individual clean until they were washed and the next day began. Rendered that individual unclean. Just testing, not clean, unclean. Thank you. So you touch something dead, you're unclean. You are not fit for the presence of the life-giving God. And this is repeated in the life of Israel over and over and over, day after day after day. Can I touch it? If I touch it, I can't go near God. Why? Because of the effects of sin. Because the world is broken. Am I sick? Yes. Why? Because of the effects of sin. What does that mean? I'm not suitable for the presence of God. I can't go into His tabernacle. I can't go into His presence. Chapter 15 then moves on from broken bodies and leaky homes to leaky men and women. Nocturnal emissions, ejaculation, Sex and a woman's menstrual flow are the the topic of chapter 15. And our Bible readers today are thankful that we didn't make them read that. (laughs) (laughs) But all of them render the person unclean. Let me read some of it. Leviticus 15, 31. You must keep the Israelites from their uncleanliness, so that they do not die by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for someone with a discharge. A man who has an emission of semen, becoming unclean by it. A woman who is in her menstrual period. Anyone who has a discharge with a male or female. And a man who sleeps with a woman who is unclean. There's this picture here that even in the natural ebbs and flows of life, there's an uncleanliness that has come in. If you even sat in the same chair as a woman who was having her period, you were deemed unclean and needed to go and wash and, and be set aside for the rest of that day. Why was that? Well, each of the conditions of this passage in Leviticus 11 to 15 mark the presence of where where death is when there ought to be life. We keep seeing that life is at the heart, but death has crept in. Reproductive organs were created for life, but the abnormal and normal loss of life fluids are not clean for God. There's something a little bit broken With the way life was meant to be created. Sin has come in. Leprosy made especially visible the presence of death and decay. The monthly period of a woman showed that the blood came out and that blood was spilt because of sin. There's a sense in which sin has got its fingers on every part of society. What did this teach the Israelites? The expansive effect of sin. It's pollution of everyday life. See, so often I minimize the effect of my rebellion against God. I'm tempted to just think, look, I've rejected God. That's something between me and God. You know, God might be angry at it. He might be grumpy at it. But it's just between me and him. But the whole system that was set up for the Israelites showed the expansiveness of the pollution of sin. It was everywhere. You had to wash to be able to be... Anywhere near God's presence. These purity laws drilled home to the Israelites just how much the effects of sin polluted everyday life. As you think about it, for us, it's not too dissimilar, is it? We lie and steal and cheat, and we hurt people. The world around us is affected. Romans 1 tells us that even creation is groaning, longing for a humanity who will come and live in it rightly. The world around us is broken. I mean, we've been living in lockdown because of a virus. We're starting to see the effect of sin and, and the brokenness it's caused in the world around us. That this world is full of pain and mourning and crying and death. But it ought not to be. That it's not how it was created and it's not how God is. And then we realize there's a problem between us and God. A cleansing that needs to happen. No, God is so different from us, so holy. And sinfulness, rejecting His rule, rejecting God and its effects, even its effects on those who come in, into contact with sinfulness, could have no place in the presence of the holy God. And that meant physical imperfection, any disruptions to the normality, any deformities and disorders. Although not considered sinful in themselves, they still reflected sin's damage and pollution of the earth and were rendered unclean. Think about the effects of this in the life of the Israelites. As the effects of sin and death creep into their diets, their disease, their houses, their communities. Even in the act of making new life, of a new life being born, they visibly and physically had to deal with the reality that life was not as it should be. They could not be in God's presence. But... The great joy of the God who made them all was that he had provided a way to wash away their uncleanness. The story did not end with sin and its effects, but God had provided the joy of restoration. It's point number four, the joy of restoration. He provided a way to restore them once again, to be as they were intended to be, holy, set apart for their holy God. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. If the man with a discharge touches anyone without first rinsing his hands in water, the person who was touched is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening. Any clay pot that the man with a discharge touches must be broken, while any wooden utensil is to be rinsed with water. When the man with a discharge has been cured of it, he is to count seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his body in fresh water, and he will be clean. He must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons on the eighth day, come before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest was to sacrifice them, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. Now to us, it feels very arbitrary and like that's kind of weird, what's going on? But each of these rituals was allowing the person to come back in to the community of God's people as clean and then before the true and living God, who was holy. They were washed clean and allowed to come back in, declared to be clean again. (laughs) These would have been rituals of great joy, not kind of, oh, this is so boring. It's like, I can can come back before my God. Sin's effects are being wiped away. These would have been moments of great joy. Now, when our kids were young, we, we tried to set up rituals to ins- install good behaviour in our kids. One of those was toilet training. All right? I think toilet training is a good behaviour. Parents want to encourage it. It's a good thing. But each time one of our kids went to the toilet and did their business in the toilet, we cheered. We were like, yes, this is great. This is a good ritual. You're doing this in the right place, not in the nappy, but in the toilet. And we kind of celebrated that, and there was kind of joy on their faces. Yeah, I did a poo. You know, like, Yeah. And the kids are excited about that. We cheered, we celebrated. Our kids were excited. How much more would the symbolism have meant when cleansing meant more than a clean backside, but being restored from the effects of death itself? As they thought through what was going on and seeing that they could now be in relationship with people, this would have been a joyous occasion that God had provided a way It wasn't too late. They had not done too much. The closest thing I could think of today, I was trying to think of a a ritual that we have. And the only thing I could come up with, it's pretty trivial, but it's the effect of death on my mobile phone. We all experience it, right? You've got a phone. And at the end of every day, what's it doing? Dying. Its battery is going down, lower and lower and lower. It's reducing in capacity the older it gets. But at the end of each day, what do we do? We, we come and by the means of the approved phone maker's charger and cable, we recharge the phone and its battery fills up again and we get a whole new day out of this phone. The effects of the battery's death are washed away with the currents of electricity. They're all gone, only to need another reversal tomorrow. It's tiring, isn't it? I've got to charge my phone again. Now, there's nothing sinful about the phone's battery draining. It's part of just normal life. But every charge is a reminder to us of the effects of being cut off from an everlasting source of life. That's a similar thing to what was happening here for Israel. The restoration and washing were perhaps the best sign that for Israel something was coming. Like with my phone, I long for the day that it just recharges in a room with wireless power recharging. Imagine how great that would be. So Israel longed for the day. Well, they no longer had to wash themselves because of the effects of sin. They longed for a day that death did not have the victory. That death could not overpower the flow of God's washing mercy. And now, for us, since the coming of Jesus, we no longer need to go through this ritual washing. We no longer need to mark restoration and healing as symbols for what God will do when He returns, because He's given us a greater symbol the resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of Christianity and what the New Testament authors point us to. Death has been defeated. In Jesus' life, what did he do? He, he reversed the effects of sin, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Jesus is the solution to our uncleanliness and to our acts to God. The Holy One has come. He stepped into our world and lived and died and rose again. And deaths and its effects went scurrying off like cockroaches. In every occasion in the life of Jesus, it was a face-off with sin and death itself. And on every occasion, Jesus conquered all. Today, as we look to the cross, we see the solution to sin and its pollution. Death defeated and life without the effects of sin promised. But what about the food laws today? How do we think about them? Let me go through point number five, I think. The inclusion of every nation. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus steps onto the world scene and declares all foods clean. Now listen to his words, Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated Thus, he declared all foods clean. See, Jesus turns up, and there's something about him, something so much more powerful than these laws that were there in the Old Testament to show that all food is now clean. Why is that? Why is all food now clean? Well, in the context of what food we eat, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4 that these foods are clean because of God's goodness. Have a look, 1 Timothy 4.4. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Right? Because of God's goodness, we get to enjoy bacon and prawns. We can even have them together, right? which is excellent. I love it. Maybe you don't. I'm sorry. But, but, but now, because of God's goodness, we can enjoy the whole lot. But the main reason the foods are now declared clean isn't for our kind of palate, so that we can find better eating places. It's because God has chosen, as He always promised He would, Not just one people for himself now, but to bless all nations on earth through the Jews. With the coming of Jesus, who is Abraham's seed, Paul tells us. The people of God are no longer just the Jews, but those who are united to Jesus by faith. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, every tribe and language and people and nation can be part of God's people. And the way God first made that known... The way he made it known that the gospel could, could go to all people was a vision that God gave in Acts chapter 10 to Peter. At this point in Acts 10, um, Jesus has risen, the apostles have got the Spirit, they've been proclaiming the news of Jesus, this gospel message, and people are being converted, and the gospel's ringing out, but only through the Jews. Uh, the Gentiles have not yet had access, the non Jews have not yet had access to this message. While they've heard it, 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 it wasn't for them, not yet. Then Peter in Acts 10 has this vision. Have a look at it with me. Acts chapter 10, verse 11. He saw heaven open and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky, long eared and short eared owls. And a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never in anything impure and ritually unclean. Now here, God is instructing Peter to violate what God had said through Moses in Leviticus. Peter's stunned. He's a Jew. He's not about to overturn 1,500 years of teaching because of one vision. And so Peter, who's got a habit of telling God what to do and what not to do, Peter says, no, Lord, no pork will ever pass these lips. No prawn will come through my two lips. It will not enter my body. It will not happen. But we don't get to tell God how he is worshipped. He tells us. And at the coming of Jesus, something changed. So again, in verse 15. A second time, the voice said to him, What God has made clean, do not call impure. That was a rap on the knuckles for Peter. Don't you dare tell me no. (laughs) What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up to heaven. Peter, who's slow to think and believe, like me often, took three times for the penny to drop, but then it dropped. Why is God undoing all these food laws? Well, it's more than just the goodness of pork and prawns. The gospel had only gone to the Jews. Then this vision comes in Acts 10, and it comes in a context of Peter being asked to go and visit a non-Jew called Cornelius. Previously, Peter wouldn't have gone. He wouldn't have spoken to this Gentile person because they're not to interact with Gentiles. But then Peter had this vision and he saw the vision as God intended it to be. No longer would God's choice be limited to just one people. But now people from every nation could be called God's people. Look at the conclusion Peter comes to from this vision of of being able to eat all animals. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. Now, how did God show him that? How did he work that out? Well, it was in the sheet coming down and the declaration that all animals were off limits. Oh, no longer, sorry, that all animals were now available to eat. Right, Unclean food had previously represented the unclean non-Jews. Now the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through his seed now that Jesus had come was fulfilled. And Peter is seeing that people who aren't Jews, and that's most of us, could be called the children of God because of Jesus. Before Jesus, we were pork and lobster. That's what we were. Everyone else, unless you're a Jew, you're pork, or you're lobster, get away from me. You might taste good, but I can't eat you, You know? But now, because of Jesus, that has been done away with. And we can be called the people of God. Do you see the link between what we eat and who we are? Between what we eat and God's choice of who he chooses to bring to himself. Look at verse 34 of chapter 10 of Acts. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For us today, every time we eat what was unclean food, owls with short or long ears, not sure if that's legal, keep, keep to the laws, whatever the laws are, uh, but every time we eat that was unclean food, pork, um, prawns, we're saying not only is God's creation good and that God is good in creating these things, but that God has no favourites anymore. He wants people of all nations to repent and come to him. That's what we're proclaiming. Every time you eat unclean food, bacon, prawns, camel, owl, every time we eat food that's distinctive to another people group, whether that's rice for the Asians or pasta for the Italians or biltong for the South Africans or emu, if you want to eat Australia's national bird, right? It's a reminder that the news of Jesus now extends to every people group of the world. Every time you eat unclean food, remind yourself, now God's grace can extend to me. Now I can be clean because of Jesus' death in my place and his resurrection. Now I have access to God. And that means that we have the missionary task of extending God's grace to all nations. If you today haven't experienced the cleansing blood of Jesus, the the promise of sins and its effects being destroyed forever, then you are, as pork and prawns were to the Jew, unfit for God's presence. But it doesn't need to stay that way. Come to Jesus today. Come to the one who has wiped clean our sins, who's who's risen from the dead and dealt with the effect of sin in our world around us. And have your sins wiped clean. Come to perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. And if you have tasted the joy of the resurrection of Jesus, then recognize that because of Jesus, and only because of him, that you can approach God. That you are clean. That you are holy. Do you know that's what the word saint means? It means somebody's a saint. They're set apart for God. They are holy. If you trust in Jesus, you are a saint. The Catholics say you need to wait seven years after death before you can become a saint. Peter says if Jesus is your king now, then you are saints now. You have been washed now. Recognize your identity every time you eat things that you wouldn't have previously been allowed to eat. Recognize that now you are called holy because of the work of Jesus. So let me ask you, church, what are you? Saints. Holy. You are So live that way. Don't linger in the ripple effects of sin. Don't join in that social gossip to say things or just watch on the side, somehow enjoying, not sinning yourself, but just enjoying others' sin. Don't let the effects of that reach into your life. Don't befriend the powers of pride. And so, muddy or pollute what we're doing, living for Jesus. Don't delight in the effects of evil, even if it wasn't you that did it, but someone else. But live as you are, a people who are holy because of Jesus. Live for him, not in what we eat, but in who we live for in every area of life because he died for us, because he rose again, because he's coming back again. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And that is what some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When Jesus came, he washed us clean to be holy. So, as we look to what Jesus has done for us, respond by being holy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that again you don't leave us on our own. That you've given us these symbols of what you are like and what we are like. Help us to recognize the great joy it is to know that our sins have been washed clean and that now... People who weren't your original choice, who aren't Jews, can can come and be called your children, can call you Father because of Jesus the true Jew and what he has done. Thank you that we've been washed clean and that Jesus' resurrection means the effects of sin will end. Lord, we long for that day. We long for the day Jesus comes back and things are put right and there's no more mourning or crying or pain. But as we wait now, as we have this resurrection hope, help us to live for you. Help us to say no to sin and yes to following you, not in order to be saved, but because you have saved us as your people. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.